Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight is the first of the annual theme of Wet Feet, stories on, under, and of the sea. This event was recorded live at Beak Restaurant in Sitka on August 11, 2017, and was presented in partnership with the Sitka Seafood Festival. Your hosts this evening are Ellen Frankenstein and Alyssa Russell. Ellen Genoweth is an affiliate professor of biology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and studies humpback whale foraging ecology and fishery interactions. She has lived in Sitka and worked with Jan Straley since 2009. Her niece and nephew call her Auntie Whale. Ellen will tell the story of her first field research experience as a lead scientist. She was working with humpback whales feeding on juvenile salmon at hatchery lease sites on the remote eastern side of Baranoff Island in Chatham Strait. I helped our 20-year-old intern off the float plane and onto the sailboat that would be her home for the next three weeks. After settling in, she smiled at me and said, This is great. I've never been on a research cruise without any adults before. So I was 28 years old, but I still had a lot of growing up to do in the science world. We were at a remote hatchery called Hidden Falls that some of you might know, and we were studying humpback whales and their foraging ecology, how they feed, how much energy they feed on different types of prey, including juvenile salmon, which are so important to fishermen. So the project was supposed to be for my dissertation, which is this project that you do to prove to the scientific community and your advisor, and hopefully yourself, that you can follow through on a project that adds a tiny bit of knowledge to the body of human endeavor. No big deal. But I had an ace up my sleeve because we had probably a hundred of thousand dollars worth of state-of-the-art technology research equipment that I was going to use to try to answer these questions. But I was also really concerned because I'm not the kind of person that's known for taking really good care of expensive things. So I'm the kind of person who goes through airport security and then like grabs my passport and all my important documents and just hands them to the person who I'm traveling with and says, you should probably take care of this. I also worked in a lab when I was in college and I accidentally added 10 times the amount of a known carcinogen to the solution I was mixing and then I dropped it on the floor. (laughs) So just to give you an example of what I was working with, we had these really cool whale tags And the idea is that you put it on the back of a whale with suction cups. And then the whale just swims off into the ocean with your $15,000 tag. And then you're supposed to be able to recover it the next day using a tracking system. And then that has all of the data on it that you're going to use for your dissertation. And hopefully you can then return it to the lab in California in their good graces. The tags are really cool. They actually record the underwater motion of the whale and including how many times the whale comes up to breathe and how many times the whale lunges at its prey, which helps us figure out how much energy they're using to feed. So um, you can imagine trying to explain this plan to an insurance company. These tags are not insured. (laughs) So after the first couple of days, all the senior scientists left and me and my two interns nicknamed ourselves Amateur Hour. So amateur hours' big goal was to get one of these tags on the back of a whale feeding on juvenile salmon at our release site. So after watching the whales feed in this area for a couple of days, I found myself on the bow of our skiff with a 21-foot pole reaching out over the ocean. And our 25-year-old intern was in the back idling the boat while she was gripping onto the dock at the hatchery. 
In front of us, a whale was finishing her bubble net and lunging through it as she'd done dozens of times already today. As she did a shallow dive, I extended the pole out over where I thought she might surface. And in the water, I could see the white scratches on her face and flippers kind of glowing green in the murky water. And her eyeball was about the size of a grapefruit, was looking up at me, and it was saying, I know what you're trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) But she needed the air that was on my side of the surface of the water. So she surfaced a big plume of kind of fishy breath up into the air, and we lurched forward in the boat. At this point, I was expecting her back to round, so I started to um, extend the pull as far as I could handle it and still make a counterweight. And then I started to let it drop down onto the back of where I thought the whale was going to surface. But instead, she looked at me, and instead of rolling her back, she arched her back to keep it under the water. (laughs) So I had to use all my strength to just stop the momentum of that pull from hitting the water with the tag before the whale came to the surface. So I managed to stop it just short of the surface of the water as she moved forward, and her dorsal fin came out. And then I dropped it. And when the pull came back up, the tag was gone. So I thought maybe it had fallen in the water. I wasn't really sure what had happened because we were so close that I'd actually dropped it on the far side of the whale. And at that point, I just looked down and I saw underwater that small tag just drifting down and away um, on the back of the whale. So amateur hour did it. We tagged a whale. (laughs) The next day, though, we had to get it back. So after searching all morning using the tracker, um, by about 3 o'clock, we found it wrapped up in kelp about 20 miles north. To our great delight, everything was turned on, everything was, um, had been programmed correctly, but when we went to download the data, it turned out that after 10 minutes, the tag had actually malfunctioned and nothing had been recorded. <laughs> so the rest of the research, there were highs and there were lows, but we never actually got close enough to put another tag on the whale. And with just two days to go, we said we don't have enough time to be sure that we could actually recover the tag in time. So we hung up our tagging pole, My interns all went to bed, and I went up on the deck just to think about what to do the next day. And at this point, it was after midnight. It was dark, perfectly dark in the bay, and incredibly quiet. And as I was sitting up there, I could actually hear the whale continuing to feed across the bay. And I had gotten really used to this pattern, so I could hear her blowing. And then I heard silence as she circled underneath her prey. And then I'd hear the bubbles start to hit the water. Then the flipper would come up, and eventually the head would make a big splash. So I got excited. I went downstairs, and I grabbed a pen and paper, a watch, and a flashlight. And I sat up on deck and just wrote every time that I heard a blow and every time I heard that splash that told me she was feeding. So at this point, I didn't know this, but I would end up writing a paper just based on detailed, standardized observations of humpback whales at these release sites. And I would actually get a phone call from the New York Times wanting me to talk about this publication um, with their science writer. But at that moment, I was just really excited because of the quiet and the darkness and confident self-reliance in the field for the first time until the whale drifted off and a light breeze over the water muffled her sound. Thank you. Thanks, guys, and thanks for coming out tonight. These are like some of my favorite events. So our next uh, storyteller is going to be Vivian Mork. She is Duck Dane Tan from the Raven Moiety. 
She has a master's degree in cross-cultural studies with an emphasis in indigenous knowledge systems. She's an ethnobotanist, traditional foods educator, storyteller, and writer who currently works as a guide. She spends most of her days moving stuff from one spot to another on her boat and lives with her partner and their two dogs. Vivian's going to share a tale of life on the ocean and the relationship we have not only with the elements, but of the people we fish with. Chinese, Hawaiian, Sami, Irish. And uh, all of that is just lingered for hello. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the short translation is that in the Tlingit language, my name is Yeshk, or Cute Little Raven. Uh, in English, my name is Vivian Mork, and I'm from the Raven Moiety. I'm a member of the Duck Dane Tan clan, and a child of the Te Kwedi, or the Brown Bear people, and a grandchild of the Kaguantan, or the Wolf people. And uh, I was born and raised in Wrangell. My family's from Huna, and now I live in Sitka. And uh, just a basic introduction in Tlingit. And uh, I am from Wrangell. <laughs> I was born and raised in Wrangell, and I am from a very large fishing family. Our family has been, of course, fishing here for thousands and thousands of years. And I think the fishing community is an interesting community to be a part of, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, the land and this ocean has definitely defined who we are. And the ocean is often very non-negotiable. It's definitely swallowed quite a few of my family members over the years. And it holds our memories for thousands of years. And I fished almost my whole life with just my family. Commercial fishing, salmon, and, and halibut, and shrimp, and crab. And the first person I ever got to be a deckhand for who was, I was not related to was the doctor that brought me into the world. Uh, his name was Doc Davenport. Uh, he fished on the Zamovia. Some people uh, may know who Doc Davenport was. In Wrangell, some people nicknamed him the Burgess of People. <laughs> um, uh, although uh, Doc Davenport definitely had a bit of a drinking problem. So, uh, he was uh, a bit exciting to fish with at times. But he always left a lot of things up to me, and I think he may have respected me because I didn't... We argued a lot. Anyways, uh, he knew I was going to be honest with him. And we were out fishing one day, and we went to the Fairweather Grounds because we heard that's where everyone was getting the salmon. We had a short king opener. And we get out there, and we are killing it. We are... I can see my next check. I know it's going to be worth it if we just stay out. And then the weather starts to pick up, and he gives me a choice. Do you want to go in, or do you want to keep fishing? And I had the itch, so we kept fishing. And the fish got farther and farther away. I had to re reach uh, for between the waves for every single fish that was coming. And we finally got the last of them on board. We were finally pushing our limits and our will. And we knew the ocean was becoming more non-negotiable. And we knew we could make it in. And we knew we could make it to the cove if we just left now. And we start throwing the fish in the hole. And I see out of the corner of my eye him out the words, oh. <laughs> and I knew I was done. 
And all of a sudden we were hit with this huge wave and that wave hit me so hard, it, I hit the boards uh, that stopped the fish from flying out and it knocked the wind out of me and I stood up and out of the corner of my eye I see the next wave that hits me and I fall down in the hole and I hit my head on the way down and good luck, bad luck, who knows, I was with Doc Davenport, so. <laughs> Uh, he pulls me up and uh, wakes me up and uh, gets me out of the hole safely. And of course, he's not going to let me go to sleep. I now have a concussion. And as we're out there in these at least 15-foot seas now, he's putting a couple of stitches in my head between the waves. And we end up uh, going into the waves. And he tells me, you got to steer the boat. i got to take care of the fish. And so we start going, and for the first time in my life, I got seasick. And it turns out, sometimes when you get a concussion, you can also hallucinate. And I saw bears coming out of the ocean at me, and still to this day in my memory is bears coming to eat us. And I knew they weren't there, and I just had to keep reminding myself, you just have a concussion. And then I began to throw up everything I've eaten since I was conceived. Sorry, you guys are eating. <laughs> and uh, in more than one bear's mouth as they were coming at us. And on the way in, for some reason, when these things happen, emotions mount, and strange things come out of people's mouths. And he knew that I had a very difficult relationship with my father, and I'm also left-handed. And I clean fish bass backwards. And as we are trying so hard to get into Indian Head Cove and finish doing all of our fish, I am, of course, going half as slow as he is. Of course, he's got 40 years on me in fishing. And he says, why aren't you cleaning the fish fast enough? What kind of daddy issues do you have? And I went, what the? <laughs> this was my last straw with this guy who cussed just for dropping a fork on the floor or... Uh, just because I did the fish not as fast as he did or in the correct way because I'm left-handed. And I was done. I was done with the season. I was done with the 20-hour days. I was done with fighting the weather. I was done with fighting him. I didn't care anymore. And I took that last king salmon and I chucked it back in the ocean. And I gave him the finger. And I walked back in and I grabbed my book and I made him steer us the rest of the way into Indian River. And I laid down with the dogs, curled up in the fetal position, continuing to dry heave. And when we get into the cove, he realizes with the silence we've done something wrong. And he stops and he's rummaging around in the kitchen and he says, I made dinner. I made some spaghetti. Are you hungry? Would you like to watch my favorite movie with me? And I said, okay, I'm game. And we sit down, and he starts the movie, and the crying game comes on. <laughs> and being gay, and being disowned from my family, and knowing the things that I had been through, he sat down in that moment trying so hard to reach out and connect. And he tells me at the end of the movie, I don't know what I would do. Love is love. What would you do? Love is love. So when he got into Craig the next, finally, eventually, and unloaded our fish, he says, as I'm unloading my clothes, 
and putting them in my bag and getting ready to get off the boat, he goes, well, it was really good having you for the season. Are you, you think you'll come back again? And I go, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to do my damn laundry. So Jackie, Jackie Foss is a field scientist, mom of a two-year-old and four-year-old who just happens to be married to a troller. In her limited free time, she enjoys blocks of expensive cheese and Netflix. Her story, Love and Fish, is about the glamorous life of a fisherman's wife. I'm not a public speaker. So, here we go. I want to tell you a story about a fisherman with dry feet. My day usually begins with a phone call or text at some stupidly early hour that makes sense on the drag, but is soul-crushing back in town. I have a perfunctory phone call with my beloved that's more shoppingless than anything. There's checks at the cannery so I can pay bills. By the way, there's a huge list of things I need you to get to get to the outgoing tender so I can stay fishing. I would rather be a deckhand than this glamorous fisherman's wife slash errand girl, but the last time I landed a fish was in 2012. I was pretty pregnant with my first kid at the time. I went out with my husband for the second chemo opener after he burned through three other deckhands. I was the last, best resort. <laughs> the only thing I remember is getting stuck in the hatch to our hold. I had been icing fish and the ladder slipped from under me and there I was, dangling, pregnant, scared six feet off the floor of our hold in light seas. I don't remember getting out of it, but I'm pretty sure it was pure pregnant rage that propelled me out of the hold that day. When asked my husband, he said the only thing he remembers is I couldn't land fish because my belly kept getting in the way. So my role now is to deal with it. Dealing with it includes everything except pulling fish over the rail or pitching to the tender. This behind-the-scenes part of fishing is so critical, but it involves paperwork, so it's not romantic at all. And my dealing with it includes bringing along two small children, ages two and four, which means in and out of car seats for two and four every single errand. And my kids are past this delightful meat bag stage where you just strap them to your torso and go. So I want you to keep the car seats and no meat bags in stage while I take you through my most recent gauntlet. I hope these phone calls come at a day that I have off from my actual full-time with benefits job, so I don't have to take time off from work in order to run our business. So I take my kids, offer some garbage treat that I swore I would never give them before I had kids, <laughs> and off we go. We start with the grocery store, and neither of my kids is content just to sit in the cart anymore. Or if they do, they want to fight over the same spot, so I find that Lakeside with its many small carts is better for familiar harmony, but Lakeside does not have everything I need for the boat, so I go to Seamart because going to both stores is not an option. We get in the door, and I threaten them in that low-voice mom way that I never thought I would use either. <laughs> Such compliant kids I would have. We stop in the bulk section, and I hope I've beat the locusts off the same boats who buy all the good stuff. My time is not my own. I never get anywhere on time. My master is a 23-pound tyrant who won't wear pants. 
So I do my best to get groceries into a cart without some small blonde child licking something. <laughs> I see that Oreos on, are on sale, and I know from having been on the boat how a small thing like a cookie can improve morale, so I buy two bags. How much shelf-stable milk should I buy? I don't really have time to think at the store, but I do the complicated math of how much to buy or send. How much longer will this bite last? How much storage is on the boat? How am I spending $60 on shelf-stable milk? I get to the front, get the groceries box while my kids fight over the horse magnet, and I'm almost to the car when I remember that the deckhand needs smokes. So back into the car and the store again, and uh, while my kids pound on the gumball machine, I tell the person behind the counter that I need a carton of Marlboro Long Boys or Camel Krispies or whatever. And then uh, more than $100 and some idle threats later, and we're back in the car. And I have the groceries are all boxed, but they don't really fit well in the back of my rusty Toyota, especially on the pile of scooters and life vests that live there. But I was good at Tetris, so I make it fit. Then I go to Murray's where I can't spend less than $300. Then everything gets back in the box, and then I am at the cannery. And so it's 11.15, and I'm hoping my kids don't crash. My witching hour is 11.30, so for those who don't have kids or don't know, the witching hour is this time between good behavior and pre-nap meltdown. <laughs> so I find a kind soul to help me schlep these boxes marked FV, been eating mac and cheese for three days straight, care of, outgoing tender, and this is one task done. So then we're upstairs to, one of, to get the checks from one of the kind women that work at, behind the desk at SBC, and there's usually candy, and there's been candy enough that my kids expect it. <laughs> However, there's tantrums when there's no candy, but I dangled that McDonald's carrot out in front of them, and the behavior gets good enough that I don't have to carry two screaming kids back to the car. <laughs> then to the bank where I can smell the finish line. I should leave my kids in the car, but I don't because of mom guilt. We're in deposit the checks, and we're back out. And then McDonald's, then home, and it's 11.45, and I'm spent, and it's my day off. And I have to file insurance paperwork, pay sales tax, figure out where we're going to buy gear, and then my husband's calling for a weather forecast. So him with his wet feet, me with my dry feet, my sticky kids, it's our business, and we're a fishing family. That's it. <laughs> So I get to introduce Ted. Ted Howard was raised in Michigan and escaped to the West in his 20s, teaching special education, social studies in Montana and Alaska. Julie Schmitz and Ted have lived in Sitka since 1986 and could not imagine living anywhere else. He's now retired, so he spends his time working in the yard on sunny days and plays guitar on the rainy ones. Thank you. So a few years ago, uh, Vern Culp was producing one of the monthly grinds, and he said, uh, let's have a singer-songwriter grind, and here's a word that you guys can write songs about. And uh, the word he gave was stormy. And people uh, wrote songs about their uh, up-and-down relationships and how they love to fight and love to make up. And uh, I thought, that, that's not how my life has gone. So I, I wrote a song about that called Cool Breeze. We've all heard of Stormy Monday, Stormy Tuesday too, all the troubles in our lives make us feel so blue. 
All through our lives you've never been stormy with me You're like a cool breeze Drifting over a calm, calm sea The wind is whistling Ripping through the town the rain is blowing sideways, bring some people down. All through our lives, you've never been stormy with me. You're just a cool breeze. Drifting over a calm, calm sea. Some people like the push, the pull, they like the ups and downs. I want to thank you, babe, for that peaceful life we found. The storm is building, you can feel the oceans roar. You can hear the stones are clacking as they shift along the shore. But all through our lives, you've never been stormy with me. You're like a cool breeze. You're like a cool breeze. You're like a cool, cool breeze over a calm, calm sea. Thank you. Is it break time? Thank you. Chuck Miller was born and raised here in Sitka and in Haines. He is the youngest of his family. Chuck is of Klinget and Haida descent, but was raised traditionally Klinget. His father, Jay Miller, was a commercial fisherman and fished out of Sitka and mostly out of Haines as a drift gillnetter on the fishing vessel Judy Kay. Chuck's mother, Mary I. Miller, was also born and raised here and worked out of Todd Cannery and the local seafood processing plants here in Sitka and a number of years at Search as a drug and alcohol counselor. Chuck has three sons, one daughter, and seven grandchildren. He is also the caretaker of Kahashkahit, the mother coho house of Sitka, and works with youth and elders of his community regarding the Kanget way of life. A little background on the story, Raven Lost His Beak, is an ancient Clinkett story that was told by Chuck's late aunt, Vita Davis, who was one of his Clinkett teachers growing up in the Sitka Native Education Program. This story was told to entertain and laugh at Raven and his antics. Raven was always up to no good and was mischievous. He always tried to find ways to get food really easy without much effort. First of all, I want to say thank you to Ellen for allowing me to come up here and speak to all of you. It's, uh, I've known Ellen. She videotaped me when I was 16 years old, which was a long time ago. And I was 16 too. She was 16 also. And uh, see, if you ever watched this program she did, it was called Matter of Respect. Watch it. It's really, really good. So that's my plug for Ellen. I'm her biggest fan. 
Thank you very much, our most honored guests, for being here this evening. I'm going to speak to you in English so you understand. Uh, but a long time ago, these stories were told in our Shlingit language uh, around the campfire in the clan houses long ago. And usually the grandparents were telling these stories to the young people. And every time they had a moral behind them. And I used to listen to my aunt Vita Davis tell this down at the A&B Hall when I was a student there. And I just loved the way she would tell it. If anybody remembers Vida, she was very enthusiastic, very outgoing, and she loved to tell stories. So this is a story she told us. I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, I'm used to telling it to young people. I'm glad there's a few young people here, and Ellen's young still, too. So, yeah. <laughs> Raven, walking along the beach. This is how all of our ancient raven stories are told. Raven is always walking along the beach. As he's walking along the beach, he's very hungry, of course. He's always searching for food, but he never wants to do the work to get the food himself. As he's walking along the beach, he notices all the fishermen of the village start paddling out on their canoes individually. They're going to get out, and they're going to go get some halibut for the day. And he watches them, and he sees the bait that they're using. Oh, it's his favorite bait. It's animal fat. Oh, he loves animal fat. Oh, he starts drooling on the cracks of his beak. Oh, I wonder how he's going to get it. He scratches his head. Hmm. And he watches them. As they get their halibut hooks out, they put the bait on, spit on the hook for good luck, and they say a prayer as they put it down into the, into the water. Bring us good luck, bring us good luck for the halibut. And they sit there and they catch halibut all day long, and this makes, boy, he's just so hungry for that fat. How am I going to get it? So he thinks about it again. He goes to the edge of the cove of the village, and he jumps in the water. And if you can imagine Raven, skinny Raven, swimming all the way down, trying to find some of those halibut hooks with that precious fat on there, and he's swimming and swimming, and he's holding his breath. Oh, he finally comes across one. Oh, it's his favorite. Oh, he finds another one. Oh, he eats it all. And all the fishermen start pulling up their halibut hooks. Huh, no halibut, no bait. Oh, well. And there was an old man who was a retired fisherman sitting on the beach. And he's watching the fishermen come in at night, probably this time of the night, from their fishing. And every one of them came back with no halibut. And they were all talking amongst themselves. How come you didn't catch any? How come you didn't? I don't know. Were you using the right bait? They were all talking. The old man was trying to figure out what was going on. And in the corner of his eye, he could see Raven coming out of the water. Uh-huh, he knew what was going on, that dirty, tricky raven. Uh, he told them, you guys come to me in the morning before you go out fishing again. I'll tell you what to do. And they all agreed. So the next morning, all the fishermen get up, they grab their bait, and the old man tells them, come here, Hatia, come here. When you get ready to go out and fish for the next day, I want you to put your bait on your hook, say your prayers, spit on the hook. And when you're doing that, hold on to your line when you let it go. And when you're fishing, continue to hold on to it. They all agreed. And they says, when you feel something on the other end, pull up as hard and as fast as you can. And they said, why? He says, just do it. So they all agreed to. They went out fishing. 
and he could see Raven in the corner jump in the water again, swam all the way down. He's so hungry for that fat. He gets all the way down there to the first hook. He grabs it. He gets ready to bite into it. And the fisherman sitting there on the edge of his canoe, he feels something. And Raven, Oh, he's mortified. He didn't know what happened. The fisherman pulls it up, finally gets it to the top. Huh? Wasawa, what is this? He had no idea what he caught. It was something black. He came to the shore, and when he rode to the shore, he got to the old man, and he says, what is this? He knew exactly what it was. He says, hey, you should bring it to the big man, the leader in the clan house at the end of the village. Show him. He'll know what to do with it. He says, okay. So he takes it to the shoddy honey, the big man. Raven's on the bottom of the ocean going, ah! He finally climbs out of the water. Oh, oh, my beak. He's so embarrassed. What should I do? He looks in the woods. I, I, I have to fix something. He sees bark and sap. And he thinks, oh, I, I'll do it like this. He gets some sap from the spruce, puts it on his beak. He gets some bark. He slaps it on his face as best he can to make a makeshift beak. Oh, he's so embarrassed. And the old man, the shoddy honey, the big man, he has it. And he puts it behind his clan screen for everyone to see like a trophy. And he knew Raven was going to come and get him. So Raven goes through the village. He sees a, a woven hat on, on the porch of the clan house. He puts it on his head. And he tries to disguise himself. He knocks on everybody's door. Hey, anybody see this black-looking object that fisherman caught earlier in the day? Everybody knew who he was. He thought he was fooling everybody. No, Clake, Clake, we don't know, we don't know. Finally, somebody said, ah, we know where it is. It's up at the clan house. Go see the big man. He's got it. So he goes up there. He gets all the way up there. Nesko! Big man says, come in. He comes in. Oh, oh, Johnny, honey. Oh, I heard you found that, that, that you have that object that fisherman caught earlier in the day. Can I please see it? He knew what he was up to. Sure, it's up there behind the clan screen. Go look. And he says, my helpers will show you. So they bring it to him. And they bring it off the wall. And he says, look. He says, oh, oh, I'm old and feeble. I, I, I can't see it really well. Bring it closer. Bring it closer. And they bring it closer to him. He says, oh, oh, ah, oh, oh. He sticks it on his face. And he flies out through the smoke hole. <laughs> That's how the story ends. <laughs> I'll share just a brief, uh, the why, reason why I picked this story, and Ellen wanted me to kind of focus on like the fisherman aspect of it, I, I thought of my Uncle Herman Davis, and if anybody knows my Uncle Herman Davis, it's his 84th birthday today, so make sure you w wish him a happy birthday. He told me a story about his father, my great-grandfather, and him going out fishing, and that's exactly what they did. They used the, the old halibut hook with the inflatable seal intestine bag, and they would go out, and his grandfather would say prayers and spit on the hook, because that's what our people did. They put the fat on there. He said they would row ashore to the beach, and we'd get to the beach, they'd eat pilot bread and just sit there and wait and watch the buoy and watch the buoy. And all of a sudden, you see the buoy go like that, and his grandfather would say, ha, 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 oh, we're lucky, we're lucky. He said that in Tlingit. Let's go, let's go. And they get out there. 
He says that was one of his fondest memories growing up. I thought I would share that with all of you. All right, that's it for me. All right, Mr. Burgess Bowder is a carpenter, harvest diver, lodge owner, and veterinarian. His story, Near Death One, is about life under the waters of Southeast Alaska. Mr. Burgess. This scares me to death, so <laughs> diving doesn't, sea lions don't, but this does. So anyhow, um, I'm going to just give you what we do in the dive fishery. There are two endeavors, farming and fishing, that are kind of unique. One harvests from the land, one harvests from the sea. The tractor to the farmer and the boat to the fisherman. Um, you know, tractors can be dangerous, certainly in eastern Washington. You can die in an air-conditioned cab in a farm tractor. In southeast Alaska, boat-associated problems are common, unfortunately too common. You know, harvest diving in, uh, in southeast Alaska is the most dangerous occupation in the United States. I hate to even use the word, but it trumps both mining and logging. Sorry about that, guys. It trumps both logging and mining. You know, uh, you've seen the program The Deadliest Catch, and the reality is that those people who are kind of macho, swaggering individuals, the number one cause of death in king crab fishermen anymore is arguing with the executives at the Discover Channel about how much they'll be paid per episode. They have heart attacks, they have strokes, yeah. So diving, harvest diving, adds a new dimension to the commercial fishery, not just the opportunity of dying in the boat sinking, but dying under the boat while it's floating. You know, boats, boats have names. Tractors may have names as well, but boats have names. It could be a geographic location, uh, you know, Cape Deception or Baranoff, or it could be a loved one, the Bertha R., um, you know, the Dawn, or it could be a, a concept, um, Destiny or Providence, or something which is totally alien to me, um, Infinity, or, uh, <laughs> that's totally alien to me, or peace. But boats have names. Mine is the Death Barge 4. Um, I could, I guess, regale you with how it got that name, but it was a conspiracy between the Suzuki Corporation of America, a former alleged murderer who drowned in the first electric chair incident in Alaska, you'll have to think about that one, and a pediatrician. But anyhow, the Death Barge 4 is a 32-foot aluminum boat, and it has um, design components of uh, a Roman galleon and a high-speed hovercraft. Um, we use this in the commercial dive fisheries for both cucumbers and gooey ducks. Um, I'll just take you through a typical day on the gooey duck fishery because, you know, it's, I think, not nearly as beautiful, but technically it's a lot more interesting for you. All right, so if we spend the night on the grounds, wake up in the morning, and I immediately fortify myself with today's medication, a couple of Flomax for an enlarged prostate at the risk of giving away too much, uh, a couple of shots of decongestant nasally, uh, three or four sulfasalazine for the ulcerative colitis, uh, a handful of ibuprofen for just general aches and pains, three tramadol tablets for 
whatever, I'm not sure. And, but let's just say that um, when you're pharmacologically fortified that way, it tends to, in you know, judgment. Judgment may go out the window. Um, and, and so anyhow. So impaired as I am judgment-wise, um, then I, you know, I get all dressed up in my dive gear. I'm wearing uh, an Italian dry suit. I have a Norwegian mask. I have um, Mexican fins. I have gloves made in Indonesia, a hat made in Indonesia. And the mask is a full face mask made in Norway. And I look at myself in the mirror, making sure everything's tucked in properly. I see this Natalie attired 73-year-old harvest diver and my uh, dive tender, who is about to do seven days in jail for a DWI. He's responsible for my life while I'm underwater. Um, this individual sees a senior having a Gumby moment. You know, uh, I maybe don't look as good as I think I do. Um, anyhow, so I'm... Uh, my. I used to say my partner, Eric, but that conjures up all kinds of things in people's minds. So my dive partner, I qualify that, is Eric, and every stinking redhead fisherman in the state of Alaska is named Eric, I swear. <laughs> and if they're a red-haired fisherwoman, or a fisher person, if you prefer, it's Erica. Anyhow, Eric steps up, jumps in the water, and my job is on deck, making sure that he is safe. Uh, right, you're on the death barge for how safe could you be? So Eric is over the side and I'm checking dials and I'm checking this and that. And these obsessive compulsive traits which one, one would never think I had. You know, they really are important when you're dealing with somebody's life literally on the end of the line. And then I step up to the rail. And you know, you're checking, you're making sure your bailout bottle is turned on. You've got all these things. And then you plunge over the side, and as you descend down through the water column, even after all my hours of diving, I still feel like bait on a hook, you know? And going through my mind are Joan Collins. You have to be older to recognize her. Um, how about Elizabeth Taylor? How about Madonna and Great White Sharks? All four of these things are known man-eaters. So... <laughs> For the senior set, you'll understand the Joan Collins, Elizabeth Taylor thing. Seven husbands apiece. Anyhow, so I'm, uh, you know, I get down to the bottom, and in a typical gooey duck fishery, you're down on white sand. It's kind of like it's kind of like the Sahara Desert, and what I'm looking for is a um, a show, a dimple in the sand. And now, what I have in my dominant hand is a 42-inch piece of pipe hooked onto an inch-and-a-half hose, 300 feet long, running to a surface pump. And that pumps water at about 95 PSI and 100 gallons a minute through this hose. And I'm looking for a dimple in the sand. And when I see one, I plunge this thing in, and hopefully that dimple is a gooey duck. A gooey duck is the largest burrowing clam in the world. So... You grab the gooey duck out of the sand, you put it in your collection bag, you move to the next spot. Some people are so good at this, you know, they look like Harry Potter with a magic wand. Touch the sand, out comes the gooey duck. I look like Darth Vader, and you know. And then when we get these gooey ducks, we bring them to the surface, we take them in the boat because of the high value. We need to get them to the harbor. You never want to be on the water and have to get to the harbor. So we make a run regardless of the weather. We get back and we sell them. 
and the paperwork associated with the gooey duck fishery, trying to sell these things and export them live to China, it's easier to send weapons-grade plutonium to the Iranians or to the, more recently, North Koreans than it is to get gooey ducks. You've got DEC permits, FDA permits, Lacey Act. You've got all these interstate shipment deals. And you have a whole bunch of potential buyers, and they're bidding for the product. And, you know, some people are wildcatters, and they'll give you a high price, but there's risk associated. Ultimately, we usually settle for the regular generic buyers who give a stable price all the time. Because in the end, we've been willing to gamble with our lives, but not with our pocketbooks. Monet Jakaitis Trafton has lived in Sitka since January of 2014. She is the chef and owner of Beak Restaurant. Previous to living in Sitka, she lived in New York City, where she worked in fine dining and has been cooking professionally for the last 10 years. Renee's story is about being the person who personally facilitates the transition between a live, biting lobster and a dead, but beautiful, delicious, butter-brushed, broiled lobster. Hello. So, I've been in Sitka for about three and a half years, and before then, I lived in New York City. Probably my most formative restaurant experience was when I worked at Oceana Restaurant in Manhattan. Uh, it was a big seafood house, one Michelin star, right off of Times Square. And it was a big, like, French Brigade-style kitchen, like, said, we chef, like, 50 times a day. My favorite station was when I worked the, I got hired for the hotline. Uh, I moved from veg station to grill. So at night, I was responsible for all the grilled and broiled items that were ordered. Um, so, uh, you know, salmon, whole grilled rod, uh, Dover sole, filet mignon, mahi-mahi, and uh, live Maine lobster. We had a pretty big lobster tank, which was located between the dining room and the kitchen. It was a half-open kitchen. Um, and you could order one and a quarter, like two pound, three pound, five pound broiled or stuffed lobster at $35 a pound. So like, you know, it's between like 50 to $100 per lobster. This is the type of restaurant it was. It was very upscale. And so... When someone would order, oh, when a guest would order lobster, the ticket would print out in the kitchen, the sous chef would read it off, and then someone, usually the intern, would have to go get the lobster from the tank. So they'd go over, like, you know, with the claw and, like, go in there and, like, pick up, like, the appropriately sized lobster and put it in a half pan uh, and bring it over to grill station. And so they put down the lobster, and the lobsters are pissed. They do this thing, they go like that, they put their, like, claws up, and they, like, fan their tail, and they're like, Ugh. I was spitting, like, spitting water. Um, and so what do you do uh, is you grab the lobster uh, by the carapace, uh, you tear its claws off, um, you cut the rubber bands off, you put them in the broiler behind you. Then you uh, flip the lobster over. You take, I take care to fold the tail over so it doesn't like flop around and cut you because that's painful. Um, and so then you take your, your knife and you stab it through the head that way and then flip it around and like bisect it the other way uh, and kind of splay it open but keeping the... Uh, like the halves intact, kind of. Uh, then you take out the brain and like the uh, intestinal tract, and you season uh, with salt, and you uh, wait for the claws to finish cooking so you can break those down too, because the body cooks a lot faster than the claws. 
So this is, uh, this is a pretty brutal way to die. <laughs> and at this point in my life, I was kind of coming off of about five years of being vegan. <laughs> um, so I really thought a lot about like the transition from like live fighting like wild lobster that grew up in Maine to like dinner that you eat before you go see a Broadway show. <laughs> um, and how like in New York City in a a city of 8 million people, like, lots of people eat meat, but there are very few people who are, like, killing animals for food, like, every day. I'm, I'm like, well, I am, like, one of these these people. It gave me kind of, you know, it's, like, interesting perspective in, like, walking around day to day. I mean, like, this is, this is something um, that I do. So when I moved to uh, Sitka, I was really impressed with, like, sort of just, like, the ethos of the community because, like, a lot of us fish, and if we don't fish, we definitely know someone who does. And maybe we don't think about it as such, but like you're definitely aware of that there are like beautiful, wild, fighting, elusive fish out there. And if you want to have eat a salmon, you have to figure out how to get it. You have to how to get on your line. You have to kill it. You have to fly. You have to do the. You have to do the whole thing. And that's something that I really appreciate about uh, living in Sitka. I'm proud to be a part of this community. Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. And thank you to our storytellers today, Ellen Chenoweth, Vivian Mork, Jackie Foss, Ted Howard, Chuck Miller, Burgess Bowder, and Renee jacatis Trafton. Thank you also to Raven Radio and Beak Restaurant. To find more about Sitka Tells Tales and to hear the podcast, you can visit artchangeinc.org. Your hosts this evening were Ellen Frankenstein and Alyssa Russell. This episode of Sitka Tells Tales was made possible with funding from the Sitka Alaska Permanent Charitable Trust and by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council on the Arts. Uh-huh.